Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Tudoriferous, the biographical, po- po- dip, 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 the biographical <laughs> podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Philip the Fair. Hmm, well, Philip the Fairish. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I've got no parochial messages, I don't think. No. Except that uh, the Human Body episode will be coming out in a day or two for the patrons. So yes. anybody who's not a patron wants to hear all about sperm and uteruses and things like that. <laughs> Way to make it welcoming. <laughs> No, so it is a lot more interesting than just that, but yes. Yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. Mm. Yeah, and it, a completely different outlook on the human body, or in-look, really, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But please, if you listen, if you could rate us on iTunes and Podbean and let us know how we're doing, that would be fantastic. It would also mm-hmm. increase our, move us up in the search factor if we've got more ratings. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. please do. Yes, yes. I think it's over to you now, isn't it? Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> the quiz. Quiz. Okay, again, I kept this fairly easy, but just so people know, it's been quite a while since we recorded. Yes, so. it has. I did listen listen to it actually, and it seemed very odd listen to it, because I was just doing ordinary housework or cooking or something, and I just seemed very odd to listen to your own podcast yeah. while you're doing it. Yeah, I've done that a few times to listen to see what we could do better, and found out you know what I laugh a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I, well, I think that's good. I find everything so funny, so <laughs> I just laugh. I'm a happy person. But yes, okay, the quiz, the quiz, the quiz. Okay, I'm not a happy person now, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Question one. What was Polydor sent to England to collect for the Pope? Peter's pence. Yeah! Mm. Well done. (laughs) Question two. What did Polydor and Erasmus argue about? Oh, who wrote the Book of Proverbs first? Yes, I can't believe you got the Book of Proverbs so specifically. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was just expecting writing something first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're making me look bad. Um, <laughs> number three. What book did Polydor write that is still taught today? Hmm. Yes. Is it a book of law? No. No, he wrote a book of inventions, but I can't imagine that's still taught today. Nope. Um, oh, looks. Hmm, I can't remember. The Anglia Historia. Oh, oh the obvious one. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's pretty much what the episode was about. <laughs> yes, mostly, because it was so oh, right. crazy. Okay. okay. Why was Polydor thrown in the tower? Oh, was it because he badmouthed Woolsey? Yes. He went there, he was meant to be bigging him up, and then it turned mm-hmm. out that he was doing precisely the opposite. Exactly. Yeah, he was meant to be getting him his red hat, and he was saying, you know, don't give this bloke a hat. <laughs> He's corrupt. 
In what reign did he start the Anglia Historia, and in what reign did he finish the Anglia Historia? Uh, well, he started in Henry the Seventh, and I presume he had finished in Henry the Eighth. Yep. Oh, well. <laughs> I was yep. thinking, is this a trick question? Is it going to be no, no, no. Charles II or something? Five. Oh, well, four out of five. Pretty good. Hmm. Especially for not having discussed it for over a month. Okay. Okay. Right. This is quite a long one. So. This is Philip the Fair, by the way. We're on to him now. Philip the Fair. Writing this episode has been frustrating since there's so much overlap between Joanna, his wife. Right. Maximilian, his dad. Ferdinand mm-hmm. Varagon, his father-in-law. And they all get their own episodes. So I've been a bit sort of circumspect about how much right. I say about each. Right. I still think we're going to end up with Juana just because of how much data there is on her. Whoever gets her is going to end up doing an episode here and then a special episode on the Patreon like we did with Isabella. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I didn't find any specific books about Philip no, in English. No, there's another one like Ferdinand, I think, where everybody was focused on the wife, which yes, was unusual. Yes, quite a few books on Joanna. No, yeah. None at all. I mean, there might be some in Dutch. I mean, there probably are. But I couldn't find any in English specifically. Right. So I've had to patchwork it together from from accounts of various parts of his life, which which has actually been quite fun. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been others where I've trawled through loads of books. But this yes. one was, was quite nice. I found lots of papers and just sort of each one was different aspects of his life. Right. So, yeah, from initial panic that there wasn't going to be enough information, I now think there might be there's quite a lot, quite a lot. And as has become the norm now, this episode has spawned a spin-off special episode, The Northern Renaissance, where we can look at the art inspired by the Burgundian court. Yes, it's Hieronymus Bosch. If I remember correctly, again, I'm going back to clothing because that was my big draw for mm-hmm. coming to this time period. Burgundian fashion was everything for the entire European continent at this time. Like right. That was the big thing was you had to follow Burgundian fashion. In fact, it didn't occur to me to look at clothing. I've looked at mainly visual arts, mentioned a bit of music and architecture, but mainly there's so many pictures that I just ended up sticking with that. Anyway, Philip the Fair. Philip the Fair, yeah. The other thing which I noticed, and I noticed something similar when I did Alexander, and I don't know if you noticed this when you did Isabella. When you read about Henry, you read about Alexander and Philip and Maximilian. and Yes. When you read about these other people... You don't hear a lot about Henry. (laughs) (laughs) I I read a lot about Henry only because of the marriage negotiations. But even then, in a lot of the papers, it was more about Isabella talking to Elizabeth of York and um, Margaret Beaufort (laughs) (laughs) and the mum rather than Henry himself. So, yeah, you're right. It was quite one way isn't it because because he's our special blokey we sort of assume he's a big player but yeah i don't think they continent saw him that way necessarily or maybe it's just historians who don't link these things together possibly as as obsessively as we do well yeah and then you'll notice one historian will mention something and nobody else mentions it and it's Mm. maybe it's because it's hard to get to these materials still yeah like the the court rolls, which are really, really fascinating, are these gigantic books where the rolls are unrolled. So they're flat. So they're about 
mm, 10 inches wide, but about 30 or 40 inches long. Hmm. And you have to make an appointment to go see them, and you can only see one at a time. And if you look in the background, there's these, I, I think they're amazing. They're walls that move. They're like shelves that move. Oh, so you I can know fit you mean, more yes. in. Yeah. And it's just an entire shelf on both sides of nothing but Henry VII for court rolls. Nice. So if you can only see one book at a time, can you imagine mm. how many visits you'd have to go to read through all of them? Like, they're thick. Yes, and to make the connections. Yeah. Oh, I just mm. want to go in there and stand there. <laughs> <laughs> just move in. I don't Everybody else wants to see something flashy. I want to see the books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know I'm mm. strange, but that would be amazing. I mean, you're standing where history was written. And that's mm. just, that's fascinating to me, especially when you see the little notations on the side when they're making clarifications and you realize that that's that person's opinion. Well, I know exactly what you mean about being with the thing, because I went to see the... We're getting some sidetracked from poor poor Philip, but that's no more than he deserves. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I see your opinion right now. (laughs) Um, I went to see a Tudor exhibition in Bath a couple Mm -hmm. of weeks ago, and they were all there. There was um, the Holbein pictures of Cromwell and more. Amazing. Really? There was the Anne Boleyn with the little bee necklace. Yes, the famous necklace. There was um, Walsingham looking very much like uh, the character on the 1970s game of Mastermind, where you've got that <laughs> bloke with a beard on the cover. Yeah, there were two Elizabeths. There were the little um, miniatures of Raleigh and Drake. Really? Um, a very strange one of Cecil. Um, there's but, the one where William Henry... Or Robert? Cecil. Uh, William. William. There was the one where Henry VIII suddenly sits up in bed and points to his son and says, that one, <laughs> with the with the Pope in a strange slump at the front with all flesh's grass right. written on it. Right. But the one that really knocked me in the solar plexus as I walked in and saw it, I thought, my God, there it is. And I felt all sort of, ah, I took my breath away, literally. Where was it? Henry VII. <gasps> his picture. With his little one, fingers? The little fingers. The one that got sent to... Margaret of, of Savoy as his wedding yeah. thing, and she said, "No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you." Yeah, uh, and there it was. And it's funny, all the other ones there, and that was the one that just leapt out. And there was Elizabeth of York next to him, but that was the one yeah. that leapt out and sort of whacked me round the head. <laughs> yeah, I thought, "Wow, there is smaller than I was expecting." Yeah. But, oh, is it? Oh, I assumed it was. A f- well, I guess if it was being sent to her, it would yeah, have to no, be small. Yeah, it made sense that it should be the size it was, because she could have held it in front of her yeah. to, to look at him before she made her decision and yeah. broke his heart. Or not. Oh. Standing in front of the very yeah. one just made all the difference. Anyway, we were talking about how difficult it is to find anything about Henry. <laughs> Because I was thinking it's a bit like digging a tunnel, isn't it, when you do these continental ones? Because you go in from the continental end yes, and hear about everything that they get up to. But then you've got to go round to the other side, look at it from Henry's side, and then sort of cross-reference everything. Yes, Which, yes. Um, which I rather enjoyed. Right, also, and there's quite a lot of um, preambles for this. Also, I found in my researches for this episode that the terms Burgundian... Low Countries, Habsburg, they all seem to be used interchangeably in history books. Yes, so, um, I noticed that as well. Yeah, so it just, mean, it just meaning all these people living under this regime. Mm-hmm. And so I've done much the same, I'm afraid. I've just gone with whatever I went with at the time. Okay. 
And also, when we, we decided at the beginning that we were only going to do these continental people in their relation to England and the English court, mm-hmm. well, I've sort of run roughshod over that plan because <laughs> okay. I found I wanted to know how all these stories linked up together, not okay. just with England, but, I, but we've got to know these people now, haven't we? And I wanted to know how Philip connected with Isabella and Richard the... Richard III, Charles VIII, <laughs> Charles VIII of France and Maximilian, etc. And I imagine everybody else does too. So yeah. perhaps we can rate him on his links to England, but I've pretty much told his whole story. Okay. okay. Anyway, that said, finally, come with me, if you will, to a forest <laughs> near Winnendale, which sounds if it's in the Lake District, but it is somewhere in the Low Countries. A woman is out hunting with her husband. She loves to ride. She loves to feel the wind in her hair. She loves the thrill of the chase. She loves to... All of a sudden, she's flying through the air. She can't stop herself. She topples over the head of the horse and goes crashing into a ditch. Her horse has tripped on a branch and it rolls down the ditch and lands hard upon her. Her husband and friends rush over. Her husband is frantic. They manage to get the horse off. Unfortunately, the only injury the lady has sustained are two broken wrists. And yet she's in excruciating pain. They get her back to the castle where she lies in bed for two weeks. Despite her agony, which leads to fever, she tries to get some work done, including establishing the succession, should the worst come to the pass. But her husband's lamentations make it very difficult to get anything done, so eventually she banishes him from the room. And so it is that he is not with her when she finally breathes her last. Two broken wrists that must have gotten some sort of infection. It's more complicated than that. We'll come to this when I get to her. In fact, we get to 1979 before we know what happened. Really? In my researches for Philip the Fair, I found myself having to go back to understand what was going on in his reign, and then going back to understand that bit, and then going back to understand that bit. So I am going to start with a quick overview of how Charles the Bold and Philip the Good reigned, and that's our Philip's granddad and great-granddad. Okay. It'd be very quick. But we won't understand the significance of the grand privilege if we don't cover this. And we have to understand not only its significance, but the repercussions of attempting to brush it aside. Okay. Well done, Maximilian. Oh. (laughs) And it's well to get these dukes sorted out in your head since they're quite confusing because they're nearly all called Charles or Philip. Yeah. So the order is as follows. Philip the Bold, John the Fearless, Philip the Good, Charles the Bold, Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian... Then we're on to our man, Philip the Fair, and his son, Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor. And start with the bit that had been confusing me. What was the connection between Burgundy and the Low Countries? Because why were they one entity up to Charles the Bold's reign when they weren't even geographically connected? So, during the 14th century, as we know, France was not one state. You know, there was Orléans, Bourbon, Brittany, mm-hmm. and there was constantly jockeying of position between them all. And the most powerful of these smaller states was the Duchy of Burgundy, located between France and the German Empire. In 1363, King John II of France granted his son, Philip the Bold, the Duchy of Burgundy. Philip married Margaret, the heiress to the lands of Flanders, and when Margaret's father died in 1384, Philip the Bold inherited the rich Low Countries and integrated them into Burgundy, creating a continental powerhouse. So there we are, it was a marriage thing. Right. So that's why the two things, are, two places are, are linked, even though they weren't geographically. Right. The duchy expanded its influences under Philip the Bold's grandson, Philip the Good, and he's 1396 to 1467. And he's our Philip, Philip the Fair's great-granddad. 
and through a combination of war and finance, the areas of Namur, Hainan, Brabant and Holland were added to the duchy. Philip the Good also developed the most extravagant court life in medieval Europe during this time, but we'll hear all about that in Northern Renaissance episode. I can't now remember whether Philip the Good was called the Good in his own time, or whether it just meant he was Philip the damn sight better than the one that came after him. <laughs> but he was. Oh, he did he did tax his people quite highly, but under Charles the Bold and Maximilian, taxes went up by three times. Oh. Under Philip the Good, there were taxes and there were subsidiaries for such events as the inauguration of the ruler, the marriage of the ruler's children, knighting his heir, ransoms should he be captured, one-off subsidiaries. Under Charles the Bold, these subsidiaries became demanded more and more until they just became an additional tax in their own right. Oh my goodness. And this is particularly hard when you consider that the first and second estates, the nobles and the clergy, didn't have to pay tax. It's only the third what? estates well, that Well, I see did. the clergy because they still don't pay land taxes here, but the nobles who had the most money? Yes, well, that's why they have the most money, probably, yeah. I suppose. But also they provide people for, fight, for battles for the king, so they don't need to pay as well. They provide the people. Hmm. It's the people they're providing that needed to pay, which is yeah. not fair. No. Hmm. Not fair at all. Uh, the people didn't mind paying the taxes quite so much if it was a time of peace and prosperity, but under Charles the Bold, it wasn't. It was war, impoverishment, and generally pretty grim, and you don't want to be paying taxes on top of all that. No. And Charles the Bold became Duke of Burgundy in 1467, and he had two obsessions, joining the two parts of his fiefdom and his hatred of the French. Because the Low Countries were known as the lands over here, and Burgundy was known as the lands over there. Oh. Yeah. Through a series of conquests, Charles managed to join here with there. So finally, the two places are joined up together. But more war, more expense. And I got yes. the impression the Low Countries didn't particularly want to be joined to Burgundy, and Burgundy didn't particularly want to be joined to the Low Countries. Probably if it not. meant more war. Yes. More war, more sons being killed, and yeah. more money being taken. Yeah, and more being dragged away from your farm to go and fight people. Yeah. For a bit of land over there that you probably don't, barely even you, know exists. Yeah. Yeah. And Charles the Bold had the opposite approach to appointing people that Isabella and Henry had. He went for wealth before competence, and these people tend to abuse their power and cause more resentment. Mm -hmm. Charles crushed the resistance, suspended government, got rid of the urban autonomy. He centralised the government and took all the power on himself. He transformed the Great Council, which had functioned since the 1440s as a travelling court of higher justice, and turned it into a Burgundian, it's, it's Parlement, not Parliament in the sense that we know it in England, but it's a fixed seat in Mechelen or Malines, whichever you want to call it, because they've same place, but it changed hands so often it's got two different names. Oh, okay. There was enough resentment during Charles's life, but the moment he died or at least the moment the news of his death became public, since his body wasn't found for some time, because his face had been eaten by wolves. Ooh! Well, he died in battle, and they didn't find him for ages, and then, yeah, then they couldn't recognise him. They had to get somebody who knew him really well. His secret parts? I don't <laughs> for know. I don't know if he had a strange tattoo or something. <laughs> it's a, oh, they managed to recognise him without looking, needing the facial, facial oh. bits. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, everything erupted at that point. The lands of Burgundy were divided between France and the Habsburgs, so the independent, powerful and influential duchy was no more, despite the attempts by Maximilian. 
So that was our whistle-stop tour of Grandad and Great Grandad's rule. So you can see a certain trend in the way that people were feeling about their leaders. <laughs> yes. And you can also see that it was not a patch on the Dutch yet had been by the time that Philip the Fair took over. Yeah. It was um, quite quite a bit smaller with a lot less resources. Yeah, and a lot more miserable by the sound of it. Yeah. Following the death of Charles the Bold and the start of the reign of his daughter, Mary of Burgundy, the cities and states of Burgundy and the Low Countries were desperate to get away from the centralism that Charles had brought. They abolished the Parlement at Mechelen, stroke Malines, and replaced it with a travelling council, because they were saying here that there shouldn't be any favouritism over one state and another if it travelled between all the different states. Right. There was no saying, this is, this is top state. Right. The greatest change occurred on the 11th of February, 1477, when Mary of Burgundy agreed to sign the Grand Privilege. And this was an important document. I would say it was the Dutch Magna Carta, since its aims were to curtail too much power from one person. And it was also cited down through the ages whenever there was a crisis of constitution. The basis of the Grand Privilege, it consisted of 20 articles, but cities and states could add articles of their own. But this document stated that Mary, Mary of Burgundy, who was running the country, couldn't marry, wage war or levy taxes without the states general say so. I wonder if they would have attempted that if she was male. I doubt it. Possibly not. Possibly not. Well, I, I can't imagine Charles the Bold accepting that. Or no. indeed Maximilian. He no. wasn't too keen either, I have to say. Yeah. But they weren't married at this point, so... Maybe he would have stepped in if they had been married. But it was a really foresighted document. The right to withhold military service in the event that the monarch violated the provisions of the Grand Privilege was the first of its kind in Europe. And that applied to everybody. It's not just that a noble could say, I'm not going to raise an army for you because you've gone against the privilege. But every villager could say to its master, I won't fight in your army because I'm not happy with the way the monarch has behaved. Ooh. Yeah. In 1831, when the Belgian constitution was being drafted, they took some of the passages out of the privilege. It was that far-sighted. Oh. So, as you can imagine, this document was hugely important to the people of the Low Countries, so you would definitely trample on our actual peril. Yes. Well, we'll cover the marriage between Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian of Austria in Maximilian's episode, but suffice it to say, on the 22nd of June, 1478... Mary gave birth to a son, Philip. And he's our Philip at last. We're <laughs> on to him. <laughs> 32 minutes into the episode. <laughs> Louis XI, the universal spider, was stirring as usual, and he claimed that the child was just a girl. So what? none other than everyone's favourite auntie, Margaret of Burgundy, held Philip up naked in Bruges Marketplace for all to see. Aww. And he was a boy with a winkle. Yes. Like a boy with a winkle is a boy. <laughs> I don't know how Louis thought he would get away with that one. Oh, he was weird. <laughs> it's a pity he died too early because it'd have been an interesting one to do. Mm -hmm. Never mind. We can't do everybody. No. He comes down through history as Philip the Fair or Philip the Handsome, but the portrait you usually see of him is it sort of looks a bit hangdog. Yeah, he's not mm. an attractive man to me. I didn't think so, but he doesn't seem to have suffered from pathological mandibular prognathism. Oh, the jaw, the Habsburg jaw. The Habsburg jaw. jaw, yes. His son did. 
So oh, yes. I was thinking maybe he was, instead of being Philip the Fair, he's just Philip the damn sight more fair than the one who came after him. Because Charles is, is, is no oil painting, is he, with his massive no. jaw. But if I remember from what I've read, uh, he was considered an incredibly handsome man during his lifetime. Philip, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was. It just doesn't come across in the picture. Or maybe our, our idea of handsome has changed. But he did have very thick lips, apparently, even as a child, because there's, there's a book which belonged to him in which he's inscribed, Cet livre appartient à Philippe, dit autrement Lipique. This book belongs to Philip, otherwise known as Lippy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who called him Lippy? I hope it wasn't his mum. <laughs> But then, on the 27th of March, 1482, Mary of Burgundy fell from her horse and died. And at the time, the actual cause of her death was a mystery. There didn't appear to be any injuries apart from to her wrists, but when she put her hands out to break her fall. Right. But, as I said, in 1979, an examination of Mary's skeleton was carried out, revealing that when she fell, she broke not only both wrists, but also three ribs, which penetrated uh. into her chest cavity and punctured a lung. Uh, probably causing a lung infection, so no wonder she was in such excruciating pain. Yeah. Especially at the time. I mean, not a lot you could do about that, I wouldn't have thought, at the time. Oh, you can't stick a it. leech on a lung, can you? No, you cannot. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> on her deathbed, Mary made the States General, that's all the states of the Low Countries who got together to make one big don't-mess-with-us type, <laughs> type grouping. Right. She made them accept Maximilian as regent. And the fact that she had to make them do it does imply that they weren't a bit, a bit reluctant. Yeah, but also that she had more power than I would have thought if she could make them do it. Well, there was a condition that Maximilian accepted the conditions of the privilege and stuck to them. Mm. Philip was only four, so the regent would be in power for quite some time. So, you know, let's hope there's no trouble. <laughs> but it is Maximilian. Right from the start, there was a difference of opinion. Maximilian wanted to carry on Charles the Bold's policy of fighting the French, while the States General were keen to make truce with France. The States got their own way on this occasion, and on the 23rd of December 1482, the Treaty of Arras was signed, and finally there was peace with France. And to seal the deal, Maximilian's daughter Margaret was promised in marriage to the Dauphin, later to be Charles VIII. Mm. the one that invades Naples in virtually every episode yes. we do. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bloke, every time he sits down from it, oh, I've got to go and invade Naples again. Yeah. And she was sent to the Loire to learn how to be a French queen. She was two. Aww. Mm. I don't think the States General trusted Maximilian. I don't think anyone trusted Nobody Maximilian. Did. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't because they took his son away from him. This is Philip. Yeah. So that the boy could be given a proper Burgundian upbringing, untainted with all that Austrian nonsense. Okay. But anyway, these are the people who are responsible for the education of the future Archduke Philip. So who were they? Well, each city or state provided a delegation to the States General. They seem to have had a long-term influence since in Philip's lifetime, he was only involved in one military campaign, unlike his warlike father and grandfather. And I got the impression that Maximilian pretty much nagged him into that one. As we'll see later, it seemed to come at quite an inconvenient time for Philip as well. Did did Philip seem like he wanted to do it? Or was he more of a peaceful king because he was spending too much time with women? I, I think, 
I think Maximilian probably convinced him it was in his interest to do it. Got it. Maybe the States General had explained to him from a very young age. I mean, they had him since from the age of four, you know, the devastation and waste of money of such campaigns. Mm-hmm. Quite late on in his quite short life, he, uh, he suddenly decides to go for this one. 1482 it was a very hard winter, and then there was a plague. In 1483, much the same. <laughs> We've had. <laughs> I'm trying to paint a picture of just how grim it was at the beginning. You've got the plague, you've got win- winter. You've got famine. Yeah. Because a bunch of people at that time paid taxes in food. Yeah. And then this year, Louis XI died and the infant Charles VIII took over. So Maximilian grabbed his chance. He wasn't wasn't going to let something like this slip by. Mm -hmm. A weak France was was an opportunity not to be missed. And this turned into Maximilian demanding taxes for his war, the cities and states refusing, Maximilian playing the tyrant to make them submit to his way of thinking. I think this this is the point where it all crumbles quite a lot. The grand privilege was completely ignored and there was a vicious circle of resentment, protest, stamping down. Oh my goodness. Until the point where the low countries pretty much had the stuffing knocked out of them by Maximilian. Maximilian seems like the worst ruler right now. In every episode we're talking about him, he's a nasty piece of work. I always heard that he was so... Up and down about things. One minute he's doing something. Oh no, I'm doing something else. Now I did. Oh, let's not do that. That people just despaired of him. Manic. But he does seem to be quite focused on uh, attacking the French. Yeah. <laughs> the states general still had Philip though, and they were passing him from state to state in strict rotation. Although at one point the people of Ghent refused to hand him over to Brabant because they didn't trust him not to pass him on to Maximilian. I don't know quite what was happening in Brabant at that time, but. Uh, they were so determined that Maximilian shouldn't have him. Wow. But in 1485, however, with the help of German troops, Maximilian did manage to nab his child. Uh, Philip was apparently terrified. He was seven years old, and this strange man in full armour, you know, bristling with weapons, suddenly clutched him to his bosom. Oh my God, that would be terrifying. Mm. Maximilian handed Philip over to Margaret of Burgundy for safekeeping. So... I keep calling her Auntie Margaret in these things, but in fact, she was Philip's step-grandmother. Yes. Because Margaret of Burgundy had been the daughter of Charles the Bold and his second wife. But Auntie Margaret was Charles the Bold's third wife. Mm-hmm. So, if Margaret had been harbouring the infant Perkin Warbeck, or Charles Duke of York, or Edward IV's illegitimate son, whichever we're going to go with, yeah. we can see now why Philip might have looked upon Perkin as a brother. If they were raised together. Yeah. And Perkin was being groomed to be a duke, and Philip was being protected, if that's the right word, from the States General. Mm-hmm. So we can see now why Philip was so reluctant to desert Perkin, even to the point of telling Henry that you know, if he had to, he would accept his terms, but Auntie Margaret wouldn't, <laughs> and that he had no control over her. Or none of that happened, and Perkin just first met Margaret and Philip after he fled from Charles VIII's court. Who knows? We never came to a conclusion. In 1488, Maximilian descended on Bruges and called a meeting with the States General. Well, it didn't go entirely to plan, as they were so fed up with his his high-handedness by this point that they took him prisoner and locked him above a spice shop for three months. This would smell good. Well, apparently it was too much. It was actually quite quite unpleasant. And apparently the other heads of Europe found this hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) They just thought he was getting his just desserts. The demand for his release was no more war with France, get rid of all Germans from public office, 
grant Ghent and Bruges a monopoly on textiles and allow self-government under Philip. Well, Maximilian initially refused, but after being forced to watch his supporters being tortured and executed... Oh, my goodness. ...he agreed to the terms. I mean, it's a pity that up to now the States General have definitely been the good guys, haven't they? Yes, not anymore. Yeah. But when Maximilian was released, he immediately reneged on everything he'd agreed to. Of course. Well, it might sound underhanded, but medieval law said that oaths made under duress were no oaths at all. Were. Mm. Yeah. But caused more resentment and the civil war just ground on. Uh, 1493 was a busy year since that was the year Maximilian handed over power of Burgundy over to Philip. He was 15 at this point, so it does seem strange that Maximilian didn't leave it for another year or two and avoid a regency situation. Yeah. Maximilian was extremely unpopular by this stage. (laughs) Um, His son was more popular, much more popular, having been born in the country and seeing that country as his first consideration. Maximilian may have thought by this point he was just banging his head against a wall with these people. Yes. Virtually everything he wanted to do, the States General vetoed. Maybe he thought Philip would get around the States General and then Maximilian could manipulate Philip and so he'd get get round to them that way. But also he'd just been made Holy Roman Emperor on the death of his father, Frederick, so he may have thought, to hell with this lot, I'm going to somewhere that appreciates me. Yeah, but nobody did, which is surprising that he got voted in, because the Holy Roman Emperor is a voted-in position. Is it? I didn't realise that. I just assumed he he followed after his... Well, maybe... I was going to say, maybe at that time... But they were impressed with him, but they quite patently weren't. No. I don't know. We'll have to wait for his episode. Well, to put this in context, this is the year that Perkin turned up having fled from the French court in the other version of Perkin's story. So up pops Perkin, and in retaliation for Philip and Auntie Margaret harbouring the pretender, Henry VII slaps a trade embargo on Burgundy. Burgundy, as you know, was already impoverished because some great buffoon had been taxing them senseless to fund the constant battles with the French. (laughs) (laughs) So it was quite something of a poison chalice that Maximilian handed over to his son. I thought of him sort of saying, oh, here you go, lad. I've broken it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Have a war-racked, poverty-stricken, bitterly divided country. Yeah, bye. <sighs> There's very few people in the low countries can have been sorry to see him go. No. He'd ridden roughshod over the grand privilege. And the low countries had become an unprofitable and even a dangerous place. Trade routes had been cut, harvest destroyed, currency had been repeatedly devalued, and there were bands of soldiers terrorising the people. Oh my goodness. There is no way I would want to live in this time period. No, and then they've got, suddenly, they've got Henry's trade embargoes on top of all that. I wonder, I would hate, I would hate to know, but at the same time I'm curious of how many people starve to death. Well, when you've got the weather and the plague on top of it all. Yeah, it just sounded like a really grim time to live in the low countries. Yeah, we, we are so... We are so far removed from the threat of starvation and disease, really. That well, we thought we were. <laughs> yes. But even then, yeah, well, even with the disease, a lot of people didn't believe it existed because so many people weren't getting sick. Like It's just, it's mm. so far removed from our daily lives that it's hard to consider the fear that people must have 
felt and watching your Every own winter. children and your family dying mm. it's oh yeah no thank you mm. yes it must have been pretty hellish when philip was sworn in at his inauguration maximilian made sure that he only confirmed the rights enshrined under philip the good so we're going back quite a way here yes. none of this grand privilege nonsense okay but philip was a completely different kettle of fish from his father and grandfather but I've, been, I've, read, I've read it being interpreted in different ways. Either he was at the mercy of his councillors and wasn't allowed to make any decisions without them, and that he was quite indolent and just let them get on with it. Okay. Or he was a sensible and cautious leader who took other people's suggestions into consideration, and that he was a breath of fresh air after Charles the Bold and Macmillan. Macmillan? <laughs> Maximilian! <laughs> Was he a breath of fresh air or was it just, oh, thank goodness, we're on to somebody new. We have hope. Well, they already knew him. Not as yes, as but they didn't person. know him in a position of power. He, well, he make assumptions and then people change. Maybe it is just you've had a long stint with somebody you can't stand. and Can't be worse. No. <laughs> but annoyingly for Maximilian, Philip's councillors advocated peace with France. Now, whether this came from Philip or whether he was a puppet of his councillors, this move was very popular with his people. Well, it would have to be. Yeah. And how, how could he afford fighting with France? Maybe there just wasn't any money. There was no possible way he could have continued. Yes. The unpopular Mechelen Parliament, Parliament was reinstated under the name of the Great Council of Mechelen. Now, this is still centralism. But the fact it was called the Great Council may have implied that it was just the most powerful of all the regional councils, okay. which may have sugared the pill of centralism a bit. But the people were so relieved to have peace and a chance of economic development, they might have let an odd bit of centralism slip by. Especially since on the 24th of February 1496, so we've gone on a bit here, Philip co-signed the Magnus Intercursus with Henry VII. It might have been a very brave or very reckless act on Henry's part to suspend the cloth trade with Burgundy three years previously. The Low Countries had been England's major export market, particularly Antwerp. Henry had managed to open up trade with France and Brit Brittany, so the blow was softened on that, that score. But it was still right. quite a, a risk, and it did hurt England financially, yes, leading did. to riots in London, So, and all to get rid of Perkin Warbeck. Yeah, one person. Yes. One person. I mean, when you see it from Perkins' side, you think, well, yes, he's being a bit of a pain, isn't he? But yes, when you see he is. it from, from all these other sides, you think, who is he? Why, why is everyone so bothered? I mean, the Magnus Intercursus must have been a great relief for both countries. Yeah, we've heard how Charles the Bold and Maximilian had sucked the Burgundian economy dry with their constant warring. The last thing Philip needed was to have the trade embargo cripple the economy further. And so he must have been desperate for the embargo to be lifted. However, this was one of the times when Philip was having problems with the French and needed Henry's help against them. So the treaty did turn out to be quite favourable to England. So mm -hmm. I don't think Philip got the best out of the bargain. But it was good for both economies to have stability that, that the treaty brought with fixed duty on trade and reciprocal trade privileges. Now remember that phrase, reciprocal, reciprocal. trade privileges. Reciprocal. And, of course, the, included in the treaty was the stipulation that Auntie Margaret should accept Henry's succession and should stop supporting Perkin. <laughs> I can't believe that was written in a treaty. Yes. <laughs> shame, shame. 
Now, Henry could make Philip do this because Auntie Margaret's power was diminishing. Mm-hmm. And this was partly due to the fact there was another Duchess of Burgundy on the horizon. Yes. Maximilian, who still held some control over his son, I mean, he was his father after all, decided to arrange links between his family and the up-and-coming Kingdom of Spain. And he arranged a double wedding between, on the one hand, his daughter Margaret and Juan, and on the other hand, Philip and Juana. And because it was a double wedding, they cancelled out each other's dowries. You think, well, why not? They're not never going to be paid, oh, are they? Yeah. And they had the added bonus that they were both implacable enemies of the French. Now, we last saw young Margaret, if you remember, being shipped across to France at the age of two to learn how to be queen for her future yeah. wedding to Charles VIII. So how yes. come she's now available to marry Juan? Well, you'll just have to wait for Charles's episode to find out that one. <laughs> it was pretty sneaky and it tied Maximilian up in knots, which was which is always gratifying. Yes. So that one we'll keep for Charles, I think. Okay. The wedding of Philip and Juana was on the 20th of October, 1496. It took place in Lier, and people have wondered, I don't know if that's how to pronounce it, L-I-E-R, and people have wondered why. Because it was, it, was, it was described as a city of 5,000 sheep heads. And I presume that's referring to the population, not actual <laughs> sheep. <laughs> I mean, surely up-and-coming Antwerp or Ghent or Bruges yeah. would have been a better bet. Because Lier was quite a modest little city. Yeah. But that might have been why, because if you get lots of big cities and states and you have to choose one of them, you're going oh. to put others' nose out of joint, aren't you? Yeah, you're going to start a fight. Yeah. Probably more relevantly was that Leah was one of the few, few cities that had sided with Maximilian. Mm. I don't know why, but they had. But also, Auntie Margaret said they should have the wedding there. And it's thought that Margaret chose it because the church was dedicated to St. Gumarus. He was a saint who had once rejoined the two parts of a felled oak tree. And so he was the go-to saint for all fractures, even uh, marital ones. Okay. Too bad it didn't work. <laughs> I think we're getting a glimpse into Margaret's, Margaret's psyche here, aren't we? Yeah. It's a bit late for her since her husband Charles the Bold had been dead for 19 years, but I expect knowing what an unhappy marriage was like, she was keen for her grandson not to fall into the same trap. Yeah. Was her marriage unhappy? He was never there, was he? I don't know. We haven't studied her yet. We haven't done her, but from seeing it from his angle, he very rarely went home. Okay. <laughs> I, th- I got the impression that she was sort of sitting there twiddling her thumbs waiting for him, and he was out fighting the French all the time and oh. trying to join the two parts of the country. Right. And I don't think he, they saw a lot of each other. It was not a very auspicious start, as Philip wasn't there to meet Juana off the ship. There was no provision for what proved to be a protracted stay by her sailors. They were meant to be taking Margaret back to Spain to marry Juan, but they were delayed by storms. And as we've already covered, here we go again, the same sailors had just introduced an unpleasant disease into the Low Countries. It gets everywhere. (laughs) Oh man, I just watched a BBC documentary called The Syphilis Enigma. Oh, found somebody in a church or an old monastery cemetery that has obvious signs of syphilis they can't put it to anything else and it was a hundred years before anybody went to the new world yeah no i'm going to think because it does it does vary 
It, was, yeah. it varied very quickly. I'm wondering whether it was just lying low for a long time. Yeah. And then something triggered it again. I don't know. Maybe it is to do with the New World. Maybe it was people coming from the New World, bringing their variant of it and triggering, yeah. triggering the one we had over here. Yeah. Because yeah. then you see the history in North America and South America and syphilis came back and eradicated a whole bunch of them. Hmm. We're back on syphilis again, aren't we? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's stop talking. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear about it anymore. <laughs> oh, Henry of Bergen, Bishop of Cambrai, officiated at the wedding. And you will remember him as the man who visited Perkin Warbeck after being imprisoned in the tower right. when de Puebla said that he didn't, didn't think Perkin was long for this world. And you may also remember him from the rumour that was doing the rounds that Perkin Warbeck was the love child of the Bishop of Cambrai and Margaret of Burgundy. Right. Not one of the sources I read for Philip mentioned the Perkin connection with his wedding. And to recap that, Ferdinand and Isabella, which as we now know means Isabella. Yes. <laughs> yes. Knew that the Burgundians were looking for a Spanish connection and so offered them Juana on condition that they sp they dropped their support for Perkin. Right. Isabella couldn't risk sending Catherine to England to marry Arthur if Perkin was still a threat to Henry's reign. Yes. So I almost felt that Juana was sort of sacrificed for the sake of Catherine. Ooh. Well, she was certainly used as a pawn, I think, in this... Very this much little so. Game. Yeah. But which way round did it go? Because I've read both. Did Maximilian approach the Spanish and suggest the unions as a way of getting back at the French? Or was it that Isabella offered the weddings as a bribe on condition that Maximilian dropped Perkin? Or was it both? It was also, from her point of view, trying to settle the countries so that they could come help with the Turks. Yeah, that's true. But one thing it wasn't was a bid by Philip the Fair to take the Spanish throne. Because no, that just wasn't. wasn't on the agenda. No, they had they had an heir. Despite having set the whole thing up, Maximilian didn't attend his son's wedding. And there's two possibilities for this, which no doubt we'll hear about in his episode. But it is possible that he didn't dare show his face. <laughs> <laughs> People would have killed him. I get the impression that Europe gets smaller and smaller for him. Yes, places where he can go. Yeah, you know. The story goes that as soon as Philip and Juana saw each other, they just couldn't wait. They slipped away and grabbed the nearest priest, ordered him to marry them right away and went straight to bed. But if this is true, sadly love's young dream didn't last long. No. Or rather it did for Juana, but Philip was able to dream about several loves really, wasn't he, at the same time? Yeah. And we'll cover the marriage more in detail in Juana's episode, but it was... Uh, Stormy, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, I will come clean. I didn't warm to Philip. No? No. Well, for one thing, he had a dwarf called Madame Dor, Madame of Gold, which was yeah. not uncommon. Lots of people had dwarves. No, yeah, they were considered good luck. Yeah, but she was made to wrestle with an acrobat called Hans. I mean, that's not nice, is it? No. Well, they yeah. often... I don't know what people were thinking. They ended up being court jesters. Mm. They were married to other dwarfs, whether they liked it or not. No, that wasn't the only reason I didn't like Philip. <laughs> so Philip was married to the third child of Isabella and Ferdinand. So not much of a catch, really, I suppose. Ahead of her in the line of succession was her brother Juan, mm -hmm. her sister Isabel, 
and Isabel's son Miguel. But who could have foreseen that, in true Agatha Christie fashion, every one of them would soon be dead? of that later because they've only just got married. A daughter, Eleanor, was born in November 1498 but who cares she was only a girl. <laughs> then on the 25th of February 1500 a boy named Charles after his great-granddad and it was just after the celebrations for his birth that they heard that Isabel's son Miguel, Juana's nephew, had died. Juana died a little while earlier and Isabella had died from complications in Miguel's birth. So Juana was now unexpectedly heiress, at least to Castile, because Aragon, as we heard in Isabella's episode, was a bit more tricky because they didn't have a precedent of female rulers. Yes. Philip and Juana were then to make the journey to Spain so that Juana could pay homage for her position as heir. And Philip had never met the in-laws. Isabella was very keen that baby Charles should accompany them, but it was not to be. And whether that was just a granny's natural desire to see her grandchild... No mention of Eleanor, you notice. Yeah. Don't, don't bother with the girl. No. Or whether they wanted to get the boy into the country as the natural heir after Juana. They didn't make quite clear at this point. By now, they had heard reports from their ambassador as to how Philip treated Juana. Yes. And I haven't covered that aspect, as we'll see more of it in Juana's episode. But either he was a long-suffering husband of a wife with severe mental health problems... Or he was gaslighting her. Or both. Or both, yeah. One, well, one leading from the other. Yeah. Possibly. Anyway, Isabella and Ferdinand probably wanted to keep Philip away from the throne and pass it straight down from Juana to Charles. And that was definitely Philip's fear, which is why he refused to take baby Charles with him. Mm. And this is 1501. Philip actually seemed quite reluctant to take Juana with him. <laughs> but he had to because she was the heir and he wasn't. Yes. But Philip demanded, at least his advisers demanded, that they go through France so as to strengthen ties with the French court. Mm. And this didn't go down very well with the in-laws. No. To make matters even worse, as far as Spain was concerned, Philip agreed to marry baby Charles to Claude the eldest yes. daughter of Louis the Twelfth, mm-hmm. Charles the Eighth, having died in 1498. Incidentally, interestingly, this is the same Claude who, as Queen, had Anne Boleyn as a member of her household. Yeah. The marriage contract was signed by the Archbishop of Besançon, all Philip's ambassadors and other dignitaries at the French court. So there's not really much going back on that. You've got a lot, a lot of witnesses there. Yeah. A part of the contract promised the inheritance of Brittany to young Charles on top of everything else he was to inherit. And Philip said that he wanted to meet his prospective daughter-in-law. She was two years old at this point. Pop- you know, popular age for betrothals. Yeah. So Louis and his wife Anne invited Philip and Juana to the French court. How awkward would that be for Juana? She didn't like it. 
No. They both didn't like it, actually, as we'll, we'll come across. Really? Louis, yeah, because Louis recognised the differences in their statuses. He insisted that Philip bow to him three times because Philip oh. owed homage to France for his right. Burgundian territories. You can see that's sort of strange links between these territories and, and France. But yeah. Louis rushed up to Juana and embraced her before she had time to curtsy because she was heir to the Spanish throne. Right. Oops. Now, I wonder if Philip found that a little bit irksome. Probably. Mm. Little Claude was then brought out, and she took one look at Juana and burst into tears. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why. She was two. That's what they yeah. do. But despite the many honours done to Juana, she still felt slighted by something, I'm not sure what, and was keen to leave. I suppose she had been brought up to hate the French all her life, and not she? Yeah. yeah. So it must have been a very strange experience for her to be. How awkward. I wonder if Philip was thinking, okay, Charles is going to inherit Spain. He's going to inherit my country. If he inherits France as well, and all That's that gets added it. to the and, Holy Roman Emperor. And Empire. Naples. Naples would and get sucked Naples. in as well. And Sicily. Yeah. You all get sucked in. Yeah, it would be huge. It'd have yeah, virtually it the whole of Europe. Yeah. When Philip and Juana entered Spain, they were greeted by the nobles dressed in black to mark the death of young Miguel. Philip found everything strange. I'm not sure how much he'd travelled before this point, but he certainly hadn't been anywhere that seemed so foreign. Apparently he had, he had learned to drink wine rather than beer, which, which he didn't much like. <laughs> <laughs> when she first met her son-in-law, Isabella hid her hand from Philip to thwart his attempt to kiss it. It was considered very edifying for someone who was due an honour because of their rank to refuse it, to say, oh, no, no, right. no, not me, don't, don't, no, little old me, don't worry about me. Yeah. But after a while, Philip grabbed her hand when she wasn't expecting it and kissed it anyway. Ooh. And everyone laughed, which was lucky, because it could have been quite a dangerous thing to do. Yes. I mean, he had acted nobly by insisting that the precedent should be respected. But if Isabella had been offended... He could have committed an unforgivable faux pas, and he's only just met the woman. I mean, it'd be, it would be awkward. You know, if you're going to put, put her off, at least wait a few days. Yeah. Luckily, she thought it was funny too, so... All's well that ends well, for uh. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> there were plans for the grandest reception imaginable in Toledo, that's the capital of Castile, but Philip caught the measles, and that could be quite dangerous in those days, but he took to his bed. Once better, he and Juana went in procession to the cathedral, but that was the day they learnt that Arthur, Prince of Wales, Catherine's husband, had died, and the court went into mourning. Right. However, Philip seemed to get over it quite quickly. He seems to have thrown himself into Spanish festivities after the period of mourning was up, but then suddenly announced he needed to go home, since a new quarrel had blown up between France and Spain over Naples, and now that Philip was to be the Aragonese heir... He had a vested interest in Naples. Mm-hmm. So he suddenly thought, I need to be I need to be in this. So I'm going home. But I got a feeling he did it quite petulantly because Isabella and Ferdinand did their best to keep Philip and Juana with them in Spain. Mm-hmm. But Philip was keen to go. For one thing, it was the heat it was middle of summer. He apparently he didn't cope very well with the heat. Mm. He was also with a mother in law who loathed him. She certainly came to loathe him, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he came to loathe her. Yes. Hmm. Although I think she was in the right. <laughs> I think she was in the right too. <laughs> in mid-July, Ferdinand travelled to Aragon to sort out the succession with the Cortes. That's the sort of Parliament thing. 
As soon as he'd gone, Philip banished the Spaniards from his court and told his Bul Bulgarian... Bulgarian? <laughs> told his Bur Burgundian... <laughs> what am I doing with words today? <laughs> told his Burgundian entourage that they would be leaving immediately. And Isabella and Juana pleaded with him to stay, but just succeeded in irritating him. Awesome. Um, you get quite a, an image of this man, don't you? Yes, you do. Petulant, short-tempered. My way only. Don't yeah. even attempt to try to change my mind. Yeah, I don't trust you. What are you doing to me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He saw these, as, saw these as delaying tactics on their part. They were trying to break his ties with the French. And this was exacerbated by Mac Macmillan. I nearly said Macmillan again. <laughs> exacerbated by Maximilian writing to Philip to tell him to keep in with the Spanish court. Philip, I think he was beginning to distrust everybody. I, I suppose he sort of has a... You can sort of see it. He's far from home. Yeah. Surrounded by people who think he shouldn't be in with the French. Yes. Maximilian thinks he shouldn't be in with the French. Yeah. He's sort of got it coming at all sides, isn't he? It's a, yeah. I mean, he's got but to... he seems like the kind of person that would say, no, I am right, I am right, I am right, stop talking. Yes, that's certainly the way he comes across. But maybe, I mean, his country is in with the French. It is it is his duty to, to do that, isn't it, I suppose? But yeah. He certainly quickly came to distrust the Spanish. And when his advisor, the Archbishop of Besançon, died, Philip was convinced he'd been poisoned and that he'd be next. So he left Toledo almost instantly with Juana. I imagine him sort of grabbing her by the wrist and That's dragging how... her. <laughs> yeah. Well, she desperately wanted to go. It would have been a tug of war between Philip and Isabel. Isabel holding one hand and him holding the other and both of them tugging. She's sort of piggy in the middle, really, I think, at this point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, if Philip wanted to go back via France, he'd have to get Louis to sign a right of safe conduct since Philip was now heir apparent to the Aragonese throne. And so there'd be a risk of him being abducted and held hostage. But I say he was heir apparent. The actual wording of the charter stated that Juana was recognised as the true and lawful heiress of the Kingdom of Aragon and the appurtenant domains, and Philip to be her husband so long as the marriage lasts and no longer. In Ooh. other words, once Juana died, Philip wouldn't have a role at all. Yeah, he'd be out. Hmm. I mean, he's ostensibly ruling, but, but he's only there on her say-so, really, as long as she lives. Yeah. And this was dependent on Ferdinand not producing another son. With Isabella now seriously ill, it was quite possible that Ferdinand would re remarry once she died and produce and another heir. Yeah. So Isabella sent word to Philip that she wanted to see him before he left for Burgundy. And she told him that he should abandon his plans to leave and should make his home in Spain. Isabella foresaw that Ferdinand would outlive her, and she feared that if he produced an heir, Castile and Aragon would be split in two again, and all her hard work uniting, Sp uniting Spain would have been for nothing. Mm -hmm. So Isabella told Philip he'd have to choose. If he left, he'd be turning his back on the chance to be the most powerful ruler in the world. He said no. Of course. Mm, he wanted to go home. But Isabella insisted that Juana stay, at least for a while, since she was pregnant again. And Philip agreed that she could stay until the child was born, but then should come and meet him. <laughs> he told his wife he loathed Spain and nothing would induce him to stay there. Mm, I hate yep. it here. I hate it. Gosh. He really does seem like a teenager, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yeah. I think I suspect 
he suspected that he'd be held in Spain whether he liked it or not if he didn't get away. Oh. I don't, I'm not sure that was quite on the cards at that point. Yeah. Was he like making a bid for freedom then? Like, did he feel like a prisoner there? I think he felt that if he stayed any longer... He would never get to it. It might be made harder for him, yes. Okay. I think maybe he thought, I'll take them by surprise and just go. And right. they can't hold me. Yeah, on the 28th of February, 1503, Philip crossed into France. And as you say, Juana was inconsolable. Why do, why do women like these men? <laughs> I don't know. Leave him. Leave him. Yes. You don't even have to do anything. Just stay with your mum. Mm-hmm. Done. Yeah. You got to be queen. Yeah. On the 10th of March, 1503, she, she gave birth to a little boy called Ferdinand. So yeah, they're both granddads now. Philip was negotiating the future of Naples with King Louis when he heard about the birth of his son. Naples was to be ceded to Philip's son, Charles, after he and Princess Claude reached the age of majority and were married. Okay. So, as we're saying, although Philip might not get Naples, his son would. So yes. he'd have Austria, Spain, France, Brittany, Naples. The Low Countries. Everything. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the combination of war, weather and pressure from mum was making it very difficult for Juana to leave Spain. Isabella seemed keen that Juana should rule Spain without Philip. She doesn't seem at all impressed by Philip. No, she did quite a lot to make sure that he would have absolutely no power whatsoever in Spain. Isabella presented to the Cortes of Castile, who had just sworn allegiance to Juana and Philip as heirs to the throne, that should Juana be absent following the death of Isabella or unwilling or unable to rule, King Ferdinand should be governor of Castile. So not where was fair. Philip in this transaction? Absolutely not. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, unable? Does she yes. already recognise that her daughter isn't mentally well? Or would Philip not let her rule? Possibly, yeah, that's too. Mm. But she's choosing Ferdinand, and we've already... We've already had our doubts about him, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> yes, what a couple of men to choose from. Juana was still trying to get away to join her husband. Why? Isabella was still despairing as she saw her united Spain disintegrating because of what she saw as Juana's misguided love for her husband. Yeah. Juana finally got out and reached the lowlands this time with celebrating crowds, which was a nice contrast to her original arrival mm -hmm. in the country, where even Philip didn't turn up. Unfortunately, while Juana had been away, Philip had fallen in love with a beautiful noblewoman. Juana's reaction to this we were to cover in her own episode, but as you can imagine, she just shrugged her shoulders and said, yeah, fine, you get on with it. Yeah, yeah. No, she didn't. She went ballistic. No. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, she did not learn her mother's ability to just go, oh, ignore it. No. Never happened. But then why should she? Why should she? I don't think she should either. No. Philip instructed Martin of Mojica, Juana's treasurer, so presumably someone in, in Juana's court who should be on her side, to keep a diary detailing her behaviour. Oh. Her behaviour? No, not Philip's. No. Which, after he'd done that, Philip then sent to her parents. Isabella must have been desperately upset to receive this, especially since she was close to death by this point. And she asked Philip to send little Charles to Spain. I don't know whether she sugar-coated it to Philip, saying, 
Or perhaps Juana's not up to looking after, mm. after him. Perhaps you could send him and we'll look after him. Perhaps she said that to him just to trick him into sending Charles. I don't know. But Philip didn't trust Isabella much either. And Charles no. was heir to Austria, Flanders and Spain. And he was betrothed to the heiress of France. I'm not sure what Philip thought Ferdinand was going to do. But he didn't trust Ferdinand either. And he wasn't going to let Charles go alone. But as a compromise, Philip would go back to Spain and he would take Charles with him, he said. Which must have been quite a wrench for Philip. He must have thought, oh God, I hated it there. Yeah. I'll take my own beer this time. I'm taking lots of beer. <laughs> Philip got together with Maximilian and Louis Twelfth to discuss the situation. Which seems an odd combination of people. Presumably Maximilian was on his one of his I love the French little moments. Yeah. Because it was definitely come and go with them, wasn't it? They concluded that following Isabella's death, Ferdinand would be considered King of Aragon and not Spain, but without the title King of Spain, Ferdinand would lose Castile. Yes. He would also lose the revenues from Castile. Thus, yes. he would no longer have enough money to wage war, and particularly, they were thinking of Naples. Okay. Yes. See, Naples, you think, oh, Naples, it's way, long way away, doesn't have much to do with anything. It seems to be pivotal to quite a lot of intrigue, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I'm... I'm wondering if that's because of its proximity to Rome. Yeah, maybe. To the Vatican. Mm. But they thought Juana would reign in Castile, although obviously it wouldn't be Juana, it would be Philip, as far as they were concerned. And Philip would then be the enemy of Ferdinand, but the friend of France. And that would tie up quite nicely, as far as Louis and Maximilian were concerned. Mm -hmm. So, on the 23rd of November, 1504... Isabella added a codicil to her will. If Juana, my dearly loved daughter, heiress and lawful successor, should be absent from this realm, or if, having come thither, she should depart from it no matter when, and should wish to live elsewhere, or if, being here, she should lack the desire or ability to rule, or administer it, then Ferdinand was to rule, govern, and administer in his daughter's name. Not Philip. No. So unification of Spain was everything to Isabella. So mm-hmm. she's saying Ferd- Ferdinand would keep, uh, keep it all together. And three days later, she died. But Ferdinand upheld the codicil. But then he read Martin of Mojica's diary, the one he, t- he did of Juana's behaviour. Right. Aloud. <gasps> in public. Oh, my God. For your own daughter. Yeah, I don't know. I can just stand on a stage and just read oh it out. My to quote the histo- historian Cheryl, thus Joanna, having first been cheated and betrayed by her husband, had hardly become queen when her father, coveting her heritage, publicly declared her insane. Oh my. If I didn't mm. like him before. Wow. Oh, what that's a thing a wrong. to do. Yeah. But Philip's attempt to blame her for the state of their marriage had massively backfired on him, as if Juana were insane, her father would be able to step in and take over, not Philip, Ferdinand. Right. So he's just shot himself in the foot with that one. Yes. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's such a horrible ha, because what she ends up with in the end is her dad. Yeah. And he was an ass. Excuse me. <laughs> no, he was. He was not but a good man. She's trapped between two asses. 
which is not a good place to be. No. As for Juana, she was influenced by two Spaniards, the Bishop of Cordoba and Ferdinand's private secretary, Conquillos. You wonder why she's influenced by Ferdinand's private secretary. I mean, she, he's her dad, so I suppose she ex- would expect to trust him. She waited until Philip was away, seeing his father, and wrote to Ferdinand, agreeing to give him authority to govern Castile. She gave the letter to one Miguel de Ferreira, and I'm not sure who this person was, but she shouldn't have done, because he stopped on his way to Ferdinand to see Philip. Oh, jeez. Yes. When Philip heard of the letter, and he can only have heard of it from Ferreira, he broke open the seal and read it. He read the letter in which his wife was taking from him his right to rule Spain and handing it to her father. In a furious rage, Philip had Conquillos arrested and racked until he confessed the entire plot. Philip then went storming back to Juana, sent away any Spaniards from her court and told her how her father was trying to deprive her, and by extension Philip, of the throne. He then told her that Ferdinand had read out the diary, at which point she probably asked... What diary? diary? Yes. What a couple of monsters. Very much. Oh, it it makes me angry. (laughs) It does. (laughs) Yes, yes, he's probably still bellowing and shouting and she's saying, oh, hang on a minute, what? Is this diary you're speaking of? Yes. Oh, oh, right, you had someone... Take a diary of what my behaviour. <sighs> Philip and Ferdinand then independently started issuing orders in Juana's name, whereas oh, Juana herself was locked away in her castle in Brussels. Mental illness or gaslighting? <laughs> Strangely, since you would have thought that he'd been itching to rush off to Spain to stake his claim, Philip decided to conduct his only military campaign of his reign. So that's why I thought it seemed odd timing for, for it, but... But not against Ferdinand, this was against Gelders. It's one of the states of the Low Countries. Maximilian had been nagging Philip to join his fight against Charles of Egmond, the ruler of Gelders, for years. But it was only this point that Philip agreed. Gelders had been severely weakened by this point, so he may have seen it as an easy target. And he did easily win. But as punishment, Charles of Egmond followed him about wherever he went, which proved to be a mistake, as Charles escaped and started the war again. (laughs) <laughs> so as punishment he was required to follow philip around well wouldn't you think it was punishment having to be in philip's company <laughs> yes yes but at the same time why would you keep somebody that might assassinate you so close it might not have been quite that close it might have been effectively prisoner but right and the thing i learned from doing the northern renaissance episode was that philip's court was one of the last itinerant courts of europe oh okay Everybody else had a... Well, they still did progresses, but... They had a progress, but they usually had a race for the court, didn't they? But Philip, yeah, he hadn't got a specific place to be. He was... Maybe because it was all made up of the Estates General. So maybe he had to be fair to everybody and go to... Maybe that's why he was called Philip the Fair, because he was fair to everybody. Except his wife. Yes. On his father's advice... Philip was coming to the realisation that depriving his wife of her liberty and any friendly faces at her court and putting it around that she was mad was causing severe rifts in their marital feelings. 
It took his dad to tell him that. I think he actually knew. Like, come I think on. He possibly did. Yeah. And having an affairs, affairs as well. Yeah. He needed Juana. I don't think his dad was saying, come on, you two lovebirds, get back together. You know, you love each other, really. He is saying, right, you need Juana. Yeah. And you need, need her to be more compliant than she is now being. Yeah. Because she kept doing really silly things like tearing up documents that he brought her to sign and refusing to go against the tenant of her mother's will and, you know, quite hysterical things like that. Wouldn't you be hysterical if your husband was cheating on you? You were locked up in a castle. Your dad and your husband were trying to take everything away from you. I'd be mm. hysterical too. Mm. I mean, the poor woman. And by the sound of it, she had every reason to tear up these documents because yeah. they were being done in her name and she wasn't being consulted at all. Yes. So why would you sign them? Nope. This sudden attempt at mending rifts at their marriage may have had something to do with the fact that Ferdinand had said that if Philip came to Spain with Juana, Ferdinand would look upon him as his son-in-law and embrace him. But if Philip came without her, he would be treated as an enemy. Ooh. So Juana actually has a bit of bit of pull there, but not really. <laughs> no. On the 24th of November 1505, a treaty was signed which gave Ferdinand the title of King of Castile, although the kingdom would be jointly run by Ferdinand, Juana and Philip. Well, that's not what Isabella wanted, was it? No, not It at was all. definitely time for Philip to go over and sort this out. And just to be on the safe side, he was taking 2,000 German mercenaries with him. Jeez. Oh, these German mercenaries, they, always, they certainly get about. I think we should do an yes, episode about them. Because, well, who were they? You I know, don't who, know. Who was employing, employing them? And why were there always 2,000 of them? Perkin had 2,000 German mercenaries. Everyone has their own pet yeah. 2,000 German mercenaries. And I think there were 2,000 German mercenaries at the Battle of um, Stoke. Really? With John de la Pole. Yes. Yeah, mm. Martin Schwartz was the yeah. leader of the German mercenaries. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, Philip spent the autumn fitting out a fleet. He secretly sent Juana to Zealand so she'd be ready to sail and no one could hold her hostage and keep her into the Low Countries, which obviously considered was a possibility. Eventually they were ready to sail, although Juana refused to sail with the ladies who were, for some inexplicable reason, travelling with them. Mm. So Philip secretly put them on another ship. Of course he did. Mm. So they're off. 8th of January... 1506, definitely the best time of the year for sailing along the English Channel. But they were on their way. They were off to claim the throne of Spain, sailing majestically out of the harbour and off up the Channel. Now we're going to backtrack a little and spend a bit of time in the English court. 1505. Catherine of Aragon's household, following the death of Arthur and her betrothal to Henry, had got out of control. Henry yes. VII was sending her £100 per month, which should have been enough to pay her expenses and have some over. But a mixture of her lavish lifestyle and the people hanging around taking advantage of her generous nature meant that everything was, was spiralling out of control. You always hear about how mean Henry was to her, don't you? Yeah. 
Um, was well, he actually sending her that money? Yes. Oh. Things had been better when Catherine had been under the influence of her duenna, her sort of maid companion. House governess, yeah. Donna Elvira. But her influence had been declining for some reason, possibly on Isabella's command. After Isabella's death, Donna Elvira was reinstated. Catherine never knew, but it was Henry VII himself who lobbied for her reinstatement. But he was very keen to keep that secret. He even told da Puebla not to tell Catherine of his involvement. But why? Why was Henry so keen that Donna Elvira should come back, apart from the fact that he may have been worried that he'd have to foot the bill for any debts that Catherine would have incurred? Well, Henry being Henry, there are wheels within wheels within wheels within wheels, etc. Donna Elvira's brother with Ah, you've got Philip it. And Juana? Donna Elvira's brother was a man called Don Juan Manuel. And Don Manuel was the Spanish ambassador of the court of Philip the Fair. Right. He was a Castilian loyalist who sided with Philip and Juana's claim to Isabella's throne, rather than Ferdinand. Donna Elvira's ascendancy in Catherine's household created for Henry a useful back channel to the Burgundian courts. Mm-hmm. And back channels were useful because Henry was still stringing Ferdinand along. Right. He was not ready to show his hand. Henry had been in contact with Philip about a possible marriage between Philip's son Charles and Henry's daughter Mary, and also from Henry himself and Philip's sister Margaret. But I think by this, this time, the marriage proposal between little Charles and Louis XII's daughter Claude was off in favour of Claude marrying the heir of the French throne, so... Philip and and Maximilian were both keen on the matches. Why? Because Henry was famously rich. Yes. And he sent Philip a portrait of himself to show Margaret, who was none too keen on the idea. And that was the fairy portrait I saw the other day. (laughs) He was 50 at this point, and Margaret would have been about 25. And she'd already been married twice, first to Juan. But I don't think she was married twice, I believe. She was married twice. She's called Margaret of Savoy. She married the Duke of Savoy. Oh. Mm. Not for long. He died quite quickly. Okay. But while Henry was courting Philip's sister, he also had economic sanctions against Philip, which had been imposed in 1501 following Edmund de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk's flight to the Habsburg territory. Mm -hmm. So more of him next time. So I decided not to tumble down the de la Pole rabbit hole at all this time. Okay. That was the stick. But Henry also had a carrot. Money. Lots and lots of money. Mm-hmm. £108,000. Jeez. And that's not our money, that's their money. <laughs> was delivered to an ambassador from Flanders in April 1505 for certain writings. Hmm? That was Henry's entire ordinary annual income. Ordinary, being yeah. presumably not taking into account the alum trade. Yeah. This money was partly to bribe Philip into giving up de la Pole, or at least not helping him, but it was also to fund Philip's takeover of Castile. Okay. So that's very much side Philip. Yeah. But this carrot and stick thing, you think Philip gets the carrot and the people of Flanders are still stuck with a stick, aren't they? Stick, yeah. Yeah. Yes. With the two marriages and Philip's enlargement of his empire... Henry was ensuring his connection to what would be a huge power in Europe. So you can see why Philip was slightly more of a better bet than Ferdinand. 
Yes. But he wasn't going to burn his bridges. <laughs> no. But how did Henry afford to dole out such large sums of money? Three things. Two we've already covered in episodes and one's yet to come. His pension from France, dating back to the Treaty of Etape, mm-hmm. when Charles VIII agreed to all Henry's terms because he was itching to start invading the Italian peninsula. Dudley and Empson's business acumen. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what we call it. Actually, I've got that inverted commas. <laughs> it only didn't come across in, in the audio. And, as we've said, the alum trade. Mm-hmm. Mm. Henry's always portrayed as money-grabbing and miserly, but I don't think he's quite like that. I don't think he loved money for money's sake. He loved it for power. He loved it for power's sake. And he seems to cotton on quite early that wars were an expensive waste of money. Yeah. So you don't get involved in them. And that includes crusades, despite papal nagging. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if other people wanted to bankrupt themselves fighting wars, and then they had to come to Henry to get themselves bailed out financially, and then Henry could say, yeah, sure, I'll stump up the money. But there are conditions. Yeah. Yes. In that respect, wars were quite handy things. Yes, for him, as long as he wasn't fighting them. So I think that's what he was doing with Philip. Surreptitiously funding him to oust Ferdinand whilst Henry was able to maintain good relations on both sides, mm-hmm. just in case. I mean, what would happen, I suppose, if Philip died or something? And Yes. On the 27th of June, 1505, Prince Henry, later to be Henry VIII, claimed that his betrothal to Catherine of Aragon was null and void. It had been made before his age of consent to it, and he was now older and had it a bit of a rethink and thought, nah, don't want to. So... In that way, Henry was pulling the plug on Ferdinand's links to the English court because it was obviously Dad Henry rather than Son Henry who was really making that comment. Yes. And as we'll hear in Ferdinand's episode, he'd refused to pay Catherine's dowry despite (laughs) Isabella's writing in her will that he should. Or maybe he couldn't pay. Henry VII, via Prince Henry, stopped the betrothal between Henry and Catherine ostensibly because of that. Okay. But how much was that the reason, and how much was it that he'd already decided to side with Philip against Ferdinand? However, Henry VII also sent a letter to Ferdinand, telling him that the marriage will still go ahead. It's okay. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but you got to give me the money. Throughout the summer of 1505, fighting in Flanders... God, 1505, fighting in Flanders. Why, did I, why do I write these tongue twisters? <laughs> Throughout the summer of 1505, fighting in Flanders continued on and off, and in July, Philip's men captured the Duchy of Gelders, which was where Edmund de la Pole was being held prisoner. And more of right. that next time. Henry's response, more money. Another £30,000 as a non-returnable loan, as on condition that Philip give up Edmund. But a little like when he promised not to have anything to do with Perkin, and then he said he couldn't speak for Auntie Margaret, Philip didn't send Edmund to England. He sent him back to Gilderland instead. And then he shrugged and said, well, what can I do? He's not in my territory anymore. My hands are tied. But he just successfully captured Gelderland. Yes. There was nothing stopping him getting him. No, gosh, this is... You can understand Henry VII's fury. How much Mm. money has he spent just to get the... Edmund de la Pole back into his court. Mm. And how much money has he just thrown away? Yes. Maybe Philip hoped that news of his victory might not have reached Henry. Oh, gosh. 
Edmund had been prisoner, this is Edmund de la Pole, had been prisoner of the Duke of Gelders. Now he was a prisoner of Philip, but he was not well treated. However, Edmund was useful to Philip. As long as he had him, Henry would keep paying up. But it doesn't reflect well on Philip, does it? I mean, Henry has paid him £138,000 so far. Yeah. And yet Philip obviously has no intention of handing Edmund over, just as he had no intention of handing Perkin over. Oh, my goodness. But he had other things to think about now, since thanks to Henry's money, he was now in a position to claim the crown of Castile, or at least Juana was in a position to do so. Yeah. Philip had a problem, though, because between the lands of Burgundy and the land of Spain lay France, and Philip and Louis XII were now at loggerheads. I'll find out why (laughs) what what went wrong in Louis' episode, but they just seem to be up and down, these people. Presumably because Philip was now aiming to become king of Spain, or maybe it was because Louis had dropped Philip's daughter Margaret as potential daughter-in-law, I'm not sure. The Venetian ambassador said that just hearing Louis' name would cause words of, quote, a very ill nature to escape the King of Castile's lips. <laughs> Wait, did they just call Philip the King of Castile? They did, yes. That was seemed a little presumptuous. Yeah, he had yes. nothing to do there. No, but perhaps he kept telling everybody, oh, I am the King of Castile, you know. I am the King of <sighs> Castile. Yeah. And people perhaps didn't realise all the ramifications of the situation. Mm -hmm. Although Philip had been playing fast and loose with Henry, now he needed his help. If Philip couldn't go through France, he would have to skirt to the north of it and go along the English Channel to the Bay of Biscay. The English Channel with its English and French pirates and its notorious storms. So Philip needed Henry's assurance that if a storm were to wash them up on the English coast, Henry would allow them to continue on their voyage. So now we're back on January the 15th, 1506, and Philip, Juana, the German mercenaries, and the ship full of ladies are just setting off along the English Channel, and sure enough, there was an almighty storm. In London, trees were uprooted, roofs collapsed, and there was torrential rain to the great hurt of sundry cattle and especially sheep. Wow. So, a terrifying time to be at sea. Yes. So, I think we might call it a day there and say, will okay. they Will they make it? Will they survive? What will, will happen they? to them? What will happen okay. to the ship full of ladies? <laughs> <laughs> Henry being his usual, un- not underhanded. It's not, yeah, well, no, he is being yeah, underhanded. Yeah, he really underhanded. is, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he's underhanded. I was, I was thinking of a politer way of putting it, but no, he really is being very underhanded. But then yeah. they all are. They all are. Yes, they are. So, we will put out the next episode next week. Yes. So, you'll hear then what happens to Philip and Juana and the rest of them on their treacherous journey along the English Channel. Yes. So, thank you very much for listening. Is it and bad we'll... that you kind of hope they drown? Well, one of them does. <laughs> well, it would take them all down. Uh, Philip and Juana are on the same ship. Because she's got to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't secrete any ladies on there. Oh, goodness. Well, that is the end of our episode, part one of Philip the Fair. We hope you enjoyed it. Who thought there'd be so much to talk about him? Certainly not me when I started the the research. (laughs) Neither did I, to be honest. I figured we'd have a lot about Juana, but not much about Philip. But, yeah. 
there's it's Philip's relationships with other people, isn't it, rather than the man himself. Mm-hmm. Mm. Although I'm getting a, a, I'm getting a sort of picture of him. Yes, I'm not liking him so far. Maybe he'll redeem himself in part two. He does. I tell you, he's a different man in part two. A oh. different man. <clears throat> <laughs> Your facial expression says all. <laughs> no, he gets worse, if anything. Mm. Lovely. Mm. So we'll see you next week for part two. See you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.